You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. 2 Timothy 2, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 read as follows. You then, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me through many witnesses and trust to faithful people who will be able to teach others as well. Or if you want to put that in contemporary terms, you might say, place the mask over your nose and mouth, slip the elastic head strap over your head. If you're seated next to a small child or someone needing assistance, secure your own mask first, then assist the person sitting next to you. In other words, there is someone who's sitting next to you, a Paul, whom you need in order to grow as a disciple. And there is someone sitting next to you, a Timothy, who needs you in order to grow as a disciple. Either way, a life is at stake. I want to tell you an ancient story. Uh, It's recorded by a man named Clement of Alexandria, probably wrote it in A.D. 190. It's about the Apostle John, the, the biblical character after the biblical period. Apparently, Clemens tells us that after uh, a ruler died, John came out of his exile and he visited the churches of Asia Minor. One day, he came to a city to visit the bishop. While John, the apostle, was chatting with the bishop, he noticed a young man, uh, a youth nearby. John said, I want you to take care of this young man, help him to know the good news of Jesus Christ. So the bishop agreed. The next time John came back to the city, he inquired about the young man, and the bishop's face grew sad. The bishop said, he's dead. Dead? What happened? He's dead to God. Turns out that the bishop had walked with this young man to the point of faith in Jesus Christ and baptism, But following that, it kind of lost track of him, and the young man had fallen into a a company of folks who didn't encourage him to make good decisions. He actually ended up in a life of crime, and over time, he began to believe that he had fallen beyond the reach of grace, and he had surrendered to his own unbelief. And he was the captain now of a band of of, uh, criminals, lived over there on the mountain across the plain. John immediately snapped into action. Hearing this story, he called for a horse, got on a horse, and the old man, Elder John, rode across this plain at full speed, came to the den, got off his horse, went through the guards, and he saw this young man who, when he recognized John, was filled with shame, turned and ran. He fled from John. And again, the old man pursued him on foot. He cried out to him these words, Why, my son, dost thou flee from me? Thy father, unarmed, old. Son, pity me, fear not. Thou hast still hope of life. I will give account to Christ for thee. If need be, I will willingly endure thy death as the Lord did death for us. For thee I will surrender my life. Stand, believe, Christ hath sent me. Hearing these words, the young man was overcome, and uh, he fell into John's arms in a flood of tears that Clement tells us was a second baptism of tears. And John, uh, from that day forward, 
walked with this young man as though he were his own son. He stayed with him, lived with him, until he could restore him to his prior faith and to full membership in the life of this city and the life of the church. How did John do it? Clement tells us he did it with copious prayers and striving along with him, striving along with him, until he is able to present him an example of true repentance and a trophy of the resurrection for which we hope. Not a great story. Maybe all you need to know this morning is that Jesus Christ is running after you in that same way. That what John did for that young man, Jesus is doing for you today. He's in pursuit of you to embrace you, if need be, in a second baptism of tears and to restore you to grace. What's beautiful to me about that story is the relationship. You and I today, I think we'd call it a mentoring relationship. It's about two men, one old and one young, who walk together into deeper relationship with Jesus. And I think Paul is saying to Timothy, in this moment, if we want the same outcome, maybe we need the same strategy, mentoring. They tell us, in the unlikely event we experience a a loss of cabin pressure, oxygen mass will drop down from overhead. And what Timothy and Paul both know is that there's a serious loss of cabin pressure in the movement that Jesus began just a few years earlier. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy and indicates that There's a crisis afoot right now. Paul's in prison. He may be in a cell beneath the emperor of Rome, who's Nero. And as he suffers, the people around him begin to drop off the Christian radar screen. They start to defect. It happens in Rome, Paul says. It's also happening in Ephesus. You can see that in verse 14 of the first chapter, uh, um, or verse 15 where the Apostle Paul says, you're aware that all who are in Asia, that's where Timothy is now, in Ephesus, have turned away from me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. They're turning away from you, Timothy. He writes in chapter 2 about Hymenaeus and Philetus, who are turning away from the truth. Quickly, hope is bleeding out of the cabin, sucking out of the cabin. And I want to say today, it feels in America like something similar is happening. Just thinking about the election again, I mean, half of us voted for change that we're desperate for. The other half of us feel terrified by this change. Uh, People are marching in our streets. Social media has turned a good thing into something that feels increasingly toxic. Family members are blocking family members. Friends are unfriending each other. And worst of all, we're starting to use all caps in our digital communication. (laughs) We're shouting past one another. And I want to tell you, the people around you, they're not turning to the church for the answers. They're not. Some of you have heard of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. This is what pollsters refer to the people that, when they're asked about their religious preferences, check none of the above. The nuns are at all-time high in America today, 25%. 39% of you young adults uh, are nuns. And a recent study was done. We used to think that that's because people had bad experiences of the church. It, the recent study said that's not the case. Actually, 60% of the nuns tell us the reason they're not affiliating with any religion is they just, quote, stopped believing. Let me tell you how that happens. 
Many of you, when you're children, grow up in the church, and you've got a Sunday school experience in the church, and you've got a Monday school experience, you know, out in your in your school. And uh, in your Sunday school experience, you have your hands open like Lori just encouraged our children to be receiving the good news of Jesus every week. And as you grow, you continue to your church education and your uh, academic outside church education continues along. At some point, most people check out of their Sunday school experience, you know, sixth grade, 12th grade, but they continue to develop in their Monday school experience. And so at some point, they get to this place in life where they're asking graduate level questions of life, and that all they have are sixth-grade answers from the gospel. And that disparity will make you stop believing pretty quickly. Got to keep learning. Discipleship is that process of learning. But how do we grow as disciples? What do we do? Well, again, that familiar voice tells you to reach up and pull the mask closest to you. Place the mask over your nose and mouth and breathe. America, would you just take a moment and breathe? Let's breathe. Open the Bible again, please, to chapter uh, 2, 2 Timothy. I want to show you this text again. I want you to see it for yourself because there are two imperatives in these two verses, uh, page 966. The first imperative really is to breathe with a Paul, and the second imperative is to breathe with a Timothy. Here's the first imperative in verse 1. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's the source of your strength, Timothy. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, Timothy, put your mask on first. Breathe in the good news of the gospel. Paul refers to it as a deposit. This word is translated as entrust, where it's a verb in verse 2. It can, can mean deposit or, 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 or commend or uh, entrust. It's sometimes used as the word to set uh, food before someone. Literally, it means to set before. And if you, if you study this, and I won't get into it too much depth, but chapter 1, verses 12 and verses 14, we see that same word sometimes translated deposit. Paul speaking first of my deposit, which is the gospel. It's the things you have heard, Timothy. It's the good news. And then he speaks of the deposit, the good deposit that, that you've been given, which is, again, the gospel. It's been entrusted to you. And here now in chapter 2, he's encouraging Paul to take this transferable asset, the gospel, and receive it. Uh, it, Paul's received it from Jesus, and then share it. Paul shared it with Timothy, and then share it with somebody else, Timothy with others who will be able to teach others also. This is the strategy. So we call discipleship the process of moving the gospel to the center of your life. And this is what we need today more than anything else. I love this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, have you realized, listen to this, most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. We have to preach the gospel to ourselves like the psalmist who says to himself, why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God. That's Psalm 42, 11. You know, when I wake up in the morning, I'm flooded with bad news. My, my alarm clock gives me bad news, but even my own soul gives me bad news. And I say, oh, my, I don't know if I can face a day. I don't know if I can do it. And, and, and Martin Lloyd-Jones says, George, you're just listening to your soul. Don't leave, never leave yourself alone with your own soul in a room, right? You, it's not safe. You need to listen to the gospel and then tell yourself the good news of Jesus. That's what the psalmist is doing. Hope in the Lord, oh, my soul. Hope in the Lord, oh, my soul. Put the mask on. Be strong in the grace that's in Jesus Christ. So 
Timothy, remember our relationship. Remember what I've taught you. Remember the good news that's come through my fingers into your life. Breathe with a Paul. That's the first imperative. Then the second imperative comes in verse 2. He says, what you have heard from me, entrust to faithful people. In other words, help somebody else with their mask. Now, you're tempted to look at your neighbors as I am and see a person who's got it all together. Don't your neighbors look great? And you're going, like, oh, they look so impressive. I hope to one day be like my non-Christian neighbor who's just got it all figured out, right? I mean, that's what my neighbors look like. Well, you know what? You gotta think. You gotta scratch beneath the surface. Cause I wanna tell you, it's the, it's, in America, it's the idea that you have to look like you have it all together that is sucking oxygen out of the room. That right there is the toxicity. And we all think we have to have it all together. And in the absence of the gospel, we have to think that we're the ones who hold it all together. So it's just that our neighbors have gotten really good at what you and I have also gotten really good, and that's pretending we don't need grace. They're living with the same news you and I are living with, except they don't have the benefit of knowing there is good news out there. I've read this to you before, but I gotta read it again. Mark Schiffman is a, a professor at Villanova, and he's, you know how we're really interested in, in apocalyptic TV shows and movies, Walking Dead and Hunger Games and all this stuff. So he writes about why this is, that this is all so appealing to us. Here's what Mark Schiffman writes. Uh, it's easy to see. Uh, the trilogy depicts adolescents rigor, rigorously trained by adults for desperate, but meaningless life or death competitions. Desperate but meaningless life-or-death competitions. Its dark emptiness resonates, this is the Hunger Games, with students. Uh, they're worried that they're all honed up with no place to go. Afflicted with a desperate compulsion for competitive advantage, they rack up majors, minors, certificates, credentials, and internships to keep them in the running for what they feel will be an ever more elusive success. They're driven by fear. They clothe themselves in an armor of achievement that they hope will protect them against uncertainties of the job market, of course, but also deeper uncertainties about their status, their identities, their self-worth. They're working steadily, uh, uh, assignment by assignment, toward gaining more control over an uncertain future. That's what's happening in our lives, and you can count on it happening in your neighbor's life as well. It may just be that the more impressive they appear, the more desperate they are for grace and the good news. So how do you do this? How is Paul recommending to Timothy that he would put this good news before others, set it before other people? Well, um, through a relationship. Same way that Paul has done it for Timothy, through a relationship. Remember, he says, my child, my child. Those two words communicate intimacy, commitment, intentionality, shared life experience. That's how he's received the grace, and that's also how he will share the grace. If you're seated next to a small child or someone needing assistance, secure your own mask first, then assist the person seated next to you. So, brothers and sisters, can I ask you a personal question? It's the who question. Who in your life is Paul to you? Remembering the people that have shaped your life so positively in the past, you can think about those people, coaches and teachers and Sunday school teachers, roommates and grandparents. I want to ask you today, today who's your Paul? Who is committed to knowing you and loving you and caring for you and walking with you deeper into relationship with Jesus Christ? 
And then who's the Timothy in your life? Who are you intentional about? Who are you pursuing? Someone who's older than you, someone who's younger than you, but someone who you're willing to impart the good news of Jesus into their life. You're willing to give them access to you, your time, your space. They could call you in the middle of the night and they know it. You're willing to hear their story, to surface with them in a safe environment, the broken places of their lives so that they can receive the good news of Jesus Christ. Who's your Timothy? You need to know your Paul and your Timothy. And by the way, they need to know that they're your Paul and they're your Timothy. I recommend communicating with one another about these things because it requires intention. So this is our fifth discipleship marker, learning together. It means we walk together with others into deeper relationship with Jesus. And I love the way we do this here at UPC. I love the way this shows up. Actually, I was with someone at breakfast who doesn't really know the church, but the one thing he said, I heard about UPC, that it's very intergenerational, that that's the young and the old and everything in between. And I thought, that's right. I'm glad you know about that because that's one of our richest gifts here. That's why we do Larson Hall, so that, so that we can all sit together and spend some time together. That's why many of you are working with uh, college students as core group leaders. And many of you are youth sponsors in our youth programs. Many of you are not even here right now because you're on our retreat uh, with our middle schoolers this weekend. That's why our children's classes, not just one or two uh, teachers, we have a team of adults, then we have a team of youth teachers, and then the kids. It's such a special thing. And of course, I see you guys having coffee with people. I see you in small groups mentoring one another. It's just mutual mentoring. It's so wonderful. Now, in my experience... Uh, there are two things that will keep us from this. Let me quickly entertain two defeaters to mentoring. Two things we say. First, we say, uh, you know what? It won't really make a difference. It's just coffee, or I'm just helping somebody with a trade or with a career path. Uh, it's just walking with someone through marriage difficulty or addiction or fi finances. Or... Yeah, okay, that might be you know the technical part of it, but it's not the technical part of it that makes a difference. What makes a difference is the relationship in which people go strong in grace. The relationship is a big thing, and it does make a difference. Remember, this is the strategy of Jesus. He could draw a crowd anytime he wanted, and he oftentimes did, but he invested himself in these handful of relationships, Mary and Martha, Peter and, and John. When he ascended to the Father, there were just about 120 people, and that was it, but they changed the world. We're going to put a Christian in that room above Paul's head in, in just a, a few generations, the emperor himself, through relational networking and mentoring. Just, you know this? Let me just give you this. Math majors will, not, will, will understand. If, if you were to mentor two people every year and they were to do the same, it would only take you 20 years to influence 3.5 billion people. That's just two people each year. Yeah, it matters. It hugely matters. It's about sharing hope with the world. Now, the other thing we tend to say is, I don't have anything to offer. You know what? I don't, uh, there's nothing, I'm not Yoda, okay? Um, and you know what? That's, that may be true. Um, you're not Yoda and you don't have to be Yoda and you don't have to have anything to offer. It's that Jesus has something to offer. You're not a better person. It's just that you have better news. See, that's what a mentor knows. Paul himself wants Timothy to understand this. In the first letter, Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, I'm the chief of sinners. See that? He's not saying, I'm better than you. You should learn from me. 
He's saying, I'm less than you. But you know what? I know where the gospel, because I am, I understand the gospel. So really this is about people who understand their deep wounded and brokenness and are out of that story to share the story of how God's grace has made them strong. And I will also say this, that your Timothy will always turn out to be your Paul as well. In the end, the Timothy and Paul end up being the same, the same thing in your life. Even though, they tell us, the bag may not inflate, oxygen is flowing. Your life is making a difference in these relationships. Last year, it was a relationship that put uh, Chapman College into the NCAA tournament. It was actually a, um, a young man who made the winning basket, a young man named Cam Haslam. And he's a Roosevelt guy, actually, graduated from Seattle, uh, and now he's down in Chapman, their star basketball player. Uh, but Cam would be the first person to tell you that he is who he is today because of a relationship, uh, because of a guy named Chick Ramey. Chick came into Cam's life when he was four years old. Just two years earlier, Cam had lost his father to cancer. And uh, wisely, his mother reached out for help, turned to big brothers. Now, Chick is a guy who grew up at UPC, and he's actually here today, but I won't embarrass, I won't embarrass him. And he decided to come alongside this young man's life. And they built a wonderful relationship together. It was a blessing uh, to both of them. First, it was formed mostly around sports. They both loved basketball. Actually, Chick had played basketball for Roosevelt as well. But Cam will tell you it was the relationship that made all the difference to him. He wrote in a text message this week, Chick has been a huge part of who I am today. He always showed up, and that's what I needed, especially when I was young. A guy in my life who had no agenda. He wasn't trying to get something out of it. He was just there for me. Sports, helping out, answering my questions. Now, Cam has not only developed into a wonderful basketball player, but a wonderful young man. Turns out he's developed a deep Christian faith. He's mentoring others, works through side-by-side, our ministry to families or serious illness. He works with Young Life um, with, uh, at Chapman, um, high school kids, and he also started a men's ministry at Chaplin, at, at, at um, Chapman. And uh, he sent a text message this week saying, you know what, here's what I learned from, from, from Chick. God always shows up. See, Chick always showed up. I learned that God always shows up. He wants to have a relationship with me. Even though I never knew my father, Jesus made it very obvious through Chick that I had one in God. Friends, you and I can be a part of a relationship just like that. The Apostle Paul urges Timothy, so I would urge you. They say that the church is only one generation away from extinction. Frankly, I don't think that's true. I don't worry about the future of the church. I think it's a world in which there is no good news that is one generation away from extinction. And I think your neighbors know it. Now is the time for people who wake up fully aware of the bad news, but very rooted in the good news, to rise up and to enter into intentional relationships, one at a time, two at a time, to help transfer that good news into other people's lives as we walk with them. We need the oxygen of reconciling grace. Take the mask and put it over someone else. What John the Apostle said to that young man, we can say to our friends as well, fear not, thou still hast hope 
Christ has sent me. Let's pray. God, we want to breathe. For so long, for too long, we've been taking short, panicked breaths. Now we want to open up our lungs and fully breathe in the fresh oxygen of your reconciling grace. If we lack the good news, perhaps it's because we've reduced it. We don't understand how full it is that you have reconciled the whole world to yourself in Jesus Christ. Let us breathe in the fullness. If we don't have the good news, perhaps it's because we today have believed that it's for everybody else, but it's not for me because there's just too much brokenness in my life. Again, let us open up our lungs and breathe in the good news that is for us. And then send us out. We're yielding, so you empower us through your Holy Spirit, we pray. Not to bless us, but to bless the people around us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.